150 years. Man, you're brave. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to be getting the third chapter of Ecclesiastes this morning. And uh, so grateful for this opportunity to open up God's Word and proclaim the truth that we find in it and trusting that uh, the Spirit will apply it to our hearts and to our lives um, that we might look a little more like Jesus uh, as we open up God's Word and um, as God's glory shines forth that we might um, turn more and more into that wonderful picture of Jesus and uh, who He is and what He's done for us. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 um, just to, just in review, we we closed and concluded last week as Solomon uh, attempts to tackle the the main problem that he he why he finds uh, vanity or uh, meaningless under the sun. If we have uh, our paradigm, the lens that we look at life, at this life in is just under the sun, and what we do in this creation is, and we try to find meaning and purpose in that. We will not, and he provided four arguments that we covered last week, and the last one that we, are, we, we, we covered last week at the uh, last half of chapter 2 was the problem of death, that no matter how many uh, treasures we build up in this life, um, we can't take them with us. We all are going to die. Even wisdom, he says, uh, proves to be vanity or meaningless because although he was certainly truly wise than than everyone else, uh, he found that the same ending resulted in both the wise and the foolish. Death. The problem of death. And we tied it in with the understanding that uh, Solomon's arguing out of the basis, the foundation of Genesis that God created and it was good and he, it was not only good, it was really good. And, and God uh, desired a, a, to uh, coexist with, with humanity and to, for, how, for humanity be, to be completely dependent on Him. And, and in the garden before the fall, Adam and Eve had enjoyed this thing called shalom, this peace with God and peace with one another. There was no sin to battle. There was no sickness. They had shalom. They were at rest with God. And through the fall, that shalom was broken. Peace was broken. And we see that in Genesis 4. The first murder occurs. And we see it playing throughout human history that there is certainly a big problem in this world. The, the evil and the darkness that surrounds us uh, continues to this day. And so we see that the foundation, what Solomon's looking at and arguing from the negative, right? We open up Ecclesiastes and he declares the meaning of life. <laughs> It's like vapor. It just is like trying to grasp the wind. There is no meaning and purpose under the sun outside of the bounds of God is what he's getting to and driving home the point to. Without God and understanding his big story, his meta-narrative of what he's doing, his rescue mission, if we, and we live in a society today that in, insists on defining themselves outside of the bounds of God and allowing themselves to be their own gods and discover to to live out their own truth. And we see the breakdown and decay of our society, the consequences of that happening before our very eyes. But as we talked about last week, as he proposed the, the problem with, with death, is 
uh, whatever we do on this earth under the sun, the material things that we acquire, it's all for naught. But we concluded last week, because Solomon concluded, he finally gave us some really good, wise wisdom in verses 24 and 25, that we are to live by faith, not fatalism. Solomon opens up his, his book and he says, he gives a, provides a poem, everything's meaningless, and it's basically fatalism. It's, everything's just left up to fate. It doesn't matter what we do or what we don't do. Uh, things are just going to carry, carry themselves out in its, in its order, and, and there's nothing we can do about it. That's basically what Solomon says in the first chapter and a half. But we as Christians in the New Testament context are not to live by, we know that there's a greater story. We are to live by faith in God's promises and what he's doing in this world and not live this fatalistic reality that we see our culture succumbing to. That, that first wise statement that he gave us in Ecclesiastes 2 and Verses 24 and 25, just as a matter of review, there's nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I've seen that even this is from God's hand because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? That's truly wise. This shalom that God desired for us that has been broken can be reestablished through God's rescue mission, through what he's done in Christ his, his desire for us to, to enjoy shalom, the promise of the shalom that is to come in the new heavens and to the new earth are, are ours for the taking because he has revealed his rescue mission, his gospel, that he is, although we have fallen and are separated from him because of the fall in Eden, beginning the big fall in Eden, he has made a way for us to enjoy life with him, life eternal and one day the promise of shalom will one day be restored. We will have peace with our God and peace with one another. And so he uh, tackles the pr- problem of truth. I don't want to re-preach last week's sermon. Um, and then in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he analyzes time. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. And as we read these verses, uh, many of you who grew up in the 60s or li- were living in the 60s and listened to music in the 60s are going to hear these, these words and you're going to say, well, that sounds really familiar because this, this was a song uh, written in the 60s. Not written, it was a song that the song borrowed these, these words, right? This was written probably in the 10th century B.C. So anyway... Uh, if you hear these verses, if you listen to these verses and read these verses and you have a course of familiarity with you, it's not probably because you've read, read Ecclesiastes later or lately, but it's because you've heard this song before. Maybe you've watched Forrest Gump. It was in that one as well. So here's the verses. There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing a time to search and a time to count as lost, a time to keep and a time to, t- to throw away, 
a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Will you pray with me? Father, we just come before you yet again. Lord, we just ask that you would work in our hearts, that you would be honored and glorified in all that is said and read today. Lord, as we proclaim your words, we just desire that your truth would be proclaimed and nothing else. Father, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and uh, you'd receive glory as we try to apply your word to our lives, Father, as we step out in obedience to follow you and what you've given for us in these uh, uh, passages of scripture, Father. We thank you for them. We thank you for your promise to preserve them. And we trust that you will um, make them active and powerful and lively in our hearts. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so here's this song, this, uh, this passage of scripture that has been, uh, was written, borrowed from uh, a guy named Pete Seeger in 1962 during the Vietnam War. And he was a guy that wrote lots of protest songs against the Vietnam War era and all that stuff. Um, but as you see, that song, it's, uh, it's, I, I was going to play it for you, but I didn't, this is being streamed on the internet, and I just had this vision of like someone saying, this guy's a heretic because he's playing a rock and roll song and in the middle of a sermon. So I didn't want that to happen. But it, that song goes, uh, uh, to every season, turn, turn, turn. Not that key, but okay, everyone kind of know that song. And so that was a very popular song. Pete Seeger wrote it during the Vietnam era uh, in 1962. But it didn't become popular until the birds purchased it from him, this, the, the folk uh, rock band called The Birds. Uh, who uh, played it or put it out on their album in 1965, right at the moment where there's a big troop buildup in Vietnam. And we know in, the, in that era there was the, the hippie movement and there was a, a big, strong voice back home here still declaring and people desiring, people like Pete Seeger and the birds, world peace. They wanted world peace. They protested. They, they did all those things that we see um, that has been chronicled for us in history to protest the the war that the America had placed in Vietnam was doing in Vietnam, and their 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 whole angst was to see world peace. And um, and this was a song that the birds bought from Pete Seeger, who obviously borrowed it from the Old Testament because the song has every single verse, and verses one through eight is in that song. The the the, the uh, sequence is a little bit different. He changed them up as far as the sequence goes, but he used every single verse. The only thing that was original was actually seven words. The word turn, which is repeated three times, right? And then at the very end of this song, he says, a time for war and a time for peace. And he put, I swear it's not too late. Trying to declare that the peace, there's a time... Uh, for peace, and he swears it's not too late. So he's using this this passage of scripture to to cry out for peace. And I swear it's not too late. And so it's not very original. We see that he borrowed this from scripture. He even admitted that he he in an interview he said I gave fifty percent of the royalties for this song to back to me because to advance my further songwriting and stuff like that. He goes, but I gave forty five percent of the the royalties to um, uh, some foundation in Israel because that's where the words truly came from. And so I wanted to make sure that the, some of the money went back to the place of origin of where 
most of the words of my song came from. He goes, but I did keep 5% just for myself as far as the royalties for the words are because I came up with seven words. That's what he said. But you see that this is a, a misuse of, of Scripture. Solomon's analyzing, trying to find the meaning and purpose of life, and he's, saying, he's, he's looking in his wisdom and saying there's a time and a season in everyone's life, and those times and seasons can be good and bad. And, and so he creates or gives us, provides through us to the power, the inspiration of the Spirit, this very um, exhaustive list of these different seasons all of us can encounter and be with in the life. He gives us both the good and the ugly, the bad, right? There's an occasion for everything. And maybe as I was listening or reading these passages of Scripture, your mind wandered and, and asked, you asked yourself, where am I? What season of life am I at? A time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot. He gives us both the positive and negative. He's comparing and contrasting the, the good times in life that we all experience and also the bad times. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. All these different seasons of life that we all find ourselves in and no doubt you could probably see yourself in the lines of one of these passages in the season of life you're in in spite of pete seeger and the birds and the hippie movement's attempt to to win over the world for world peace we stand in 2021 and we look back in the dawn of history and we say not even close. No such thing as world peace. As much as that would be a great thing, that construct outside of the bounds and ideas and the, the meta-narrative that God is doing in His creation, it just will not happen because we are a fallen humanity. We are separated from our God. We are seeking the culture and the world, the the life outside of the thing, the bounds of God are seeking their own successes and desires and abandoning and, and declaring that God doesn't even exist and then our children are being taught those things. All those, these things that we're facing today is the reality that there is no peace to be found in this world in and of ourselves under the sun. That peace can only be found in the bounds of God. And his mission. And that should be encouraging for us today. That there, peace can be found, but it's not anything under the sun. It's not in man's wisdom, but in God's. We go on in verses uh, 9 through 15. Um, Solomon begins to read or, or speak his, his theology into his, his knowledge, right? He, up until this point, in fact, the last half of chapter 2 is the first time he's mentioned God. He's tried to demonstrate to us that if we try to find meaning and purpose in and under the sun, it, it leads to vanity and meaninglessness. meaninglessness. But then he gave us that, uh, that understanding that uh, but if God, God, if we have God as the center, then we can find meaning and purpose in that. But he also declared in this first poem in chapter 1 that he, he kind of um, alluded to the fact that, that creation and time on this earth seems circular, that everything just circu was circular, that the seasons come and they go, 
right? Uh, civilizations come, they, they go to work every day. The sun rises, the sun sets every day. Tomorrow we, we know that the sun will rise again. Everything seems so circular, the, 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 the snow melting down the, down the mountains and coming into a tributary, and the tributary is taking it into a river, and the river takes it into the ocean. It's just a, a circular pattern, circular pattern. And um, even he, as he's looking at, through his wisdom and he, he's seeing this, this circular thing, he's also seeing that all we have to look forward to is death, ultimately. And that's this circular pattern of thinking that we're just here by accident, that everything just continues on, and when we die, the world will just move on, and it's just circular. There's many Eastern religions that, that believe that this universe is designed in just this circular thing, and we'll just graduate to another life and, and all those things. Even in the West, we, we have religions declaring that everything just seems to be, you know, God's, or the universe is just set into motion, and it's just repeating its circular pattern. But Solomon breaks in here and he, he begins to read his theology, not his wisdom as his pursue, looking at the world and creation in his eyes and his understanding, but the theology that he knows as, as the king of the Israelites. He begins to interject his truth. I talked about it last week, how the truth that we have, what we deem as truth, informs right, our knowledge. It's our beliefs. The, the, the truth that we have informs our beliefs and that creates the knowledge that we have to live out in this world. And the wisdom comes when we take our knowledge that, we, that has been informed by our truth and our beliefs and we live it out in this world and we experience it. And in that we gain wisdom. And Solomon, it seems to me, is, is interjecting his theology, what he hasn't observed but what he knows to be true of his God in these next passages of Scripture. And what he's interjecting here is that time is not circular, but it's linear. There is a beginning because God's word said in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there's an end. In Revelation, we know that the world as we know it will come to an end. There, it's not circular. It is linear. God is working his will out in his creation. And so he interjects his theology in these next verses, verses that we see in verses 9 through 15. What does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. And so he's interjecting God in this thing, and he's saying God has made everything appropriate in its time. And so he's just given us this exhaustive list of seasons of life, and he's saying God has made those things, everything appropriate in its time. And so we are deduced from that that the seasons of life that we find ourselves in, that God has allowed us to have in our lives, is from him. He's allowed the seasons of our life to be the case. He has made everything appropriate in his time, he also, Solomon also goes on to say that God has also put eternity in the heart, in their hearts. Again, tying back to the foundation of Genesis. God created man and woman, and it was very good. And God desired for them to have shalom, this peace with God and peace with one another. God did not desire death to come upon man and woman. That was not his desire for man and woman. He, he knew in his omniscience that that was going to be the case, but that was not his desire. His desire was shalom. 
peace with him, peace with one another, to live eternally with, their, with our God, with their God. And Solomon says, I know that God has put eternity in our hearts. We have a desire. Paul speaks of it in Romans, that, we, that even the, the wicked know that there is a God, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They are born with that innate desire of eternity. And, and, they, and Solomon's speaking this into, uh, writing this, that God has put eternity in their hearts. But look at this next passage of Scripture. But no one can discover the work God has done from the beginning to end. Again, Solomon's writing this in um, probably 10th century B.C., God, as we know, has progressively revealed his will through human history. And so there's a whole lot of revelation that hasn't happened yet for Solomon. And we can stand here today in 2021 and be so thankful that we do know God's plan from beginning to end. He has put eternity in our hearts. And he's given us the promise of eternity through the salvation that's extended to us in Jesus. We know We are so blessed to have God's preserved word and know the beginning from the end and know that shalom is coming. There will once again be peace with God and peace with one another in humanity. And so how grateful, if there's anything we take away this morning, how grateful we should be to our God to be born at this time, to have his complete revealed word for us that we can know God's, what God is doing from beginning to end. He goes on in verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. Again, referencing back to this thing of shalom. right? God, our Father, is not some evil taskmaster who just desires to make us miserable our entire life. He desires for us to, to enjoy life to have shalom with him, to have peace with him and with one another. That's his greatest desire. And in the bounds of God and understanding of God, we can have that. Not perfectly yet, but that's what he's given us the ability to do, to seek out as we walk in obedience with him. I know that there is nothing better for them to rejoice and enjoy the good life. He goes on in verse 13, it is also the gift of God, the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. Again, we talked about it in Sunday school. Taking the time out to thank God for his answers to prayer. When he does answer our prayer and we acknowledge that, to spend time on bended knee. And I said, thanks, God, right? Thanks for answering that one. But spend some time on our knee, on bended knee, going, God, you're, you've proved yourself faithful yet again. Thank you. The gifts that God has given us, the meals that we eat, the people that we have in our and family that we have in our lives are all gifts from God. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. His common grace is extended to all. But it's the Christian who acknowledges the giver of the gift. And we can find peace and meaning and purpose in him and enjoy all his efforts. We enjoy all of God's or all of our efforts through knowing that it is God who gives them to us. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will last forever. And so again, he's reading, he's inputting his theology into, into his, his statements of truth and wisdom. He knows who God is, and he says, I know that everything God does will last forever. 
There is no adding or taking away from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. And this is speaking of God's sovereignty. God is ruling and actively working in his creation. He's sovereignly working out his will. And everything that God does will last forever. There's nothing that man can do. And this is all backed up by scripture. There's nothing that man can do to, to, to thwart God or change his will or, or, or mess up his will. God is at work and everything he does will last forever. And God does it. Why? So God works so that the people will be in awe of him. We've, we've talked, touched on it in Colossians where, where Paul writes about Jesus and he says, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. It's for God's glory. God is working in his creation and in your lives for his glory first. For your benefit, yes, but for his glory. That we might be in awe of our creator. God works so that people will be in awe of him. The Westminster Catechism says, asks the children, the, what's the, what's the purpose, meaning and purpose of life? And the answer is, the, purpose and meaning, the chief purpose and meaning of life is that, that uh, we are to um, obey God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him. He reveals himself to us as our father. And we are to be dependent on him and enjoy and rest in him and, and seek that shalom in him. And God, in that way, gets the glory. God works so that the people will be in awe of him. Verse 15, whatever is, has already been, and whatever will be, already is. He's speaking of God's, um, he's, transcendent over time god's not bound by time like he is uh, like we are as his creation whatever god has purpose has already been and whatever will be already is it is it is final it is complete in god in god's sovereign will uh, and he tomorrow god's already there next year god's already there i uh, my good friend todd wood always says i'm not the son of a prophet or a prophet i don't know what tomorrow or the next day is gonna gonna bring but god does He's already there. He is sovereignly working out his will for our good and for his pleasure and glory. And so we come to this understanding as, as uh, Solomon begins to, to speak his theology, what he knows to be true about God, into his observ- observances of what he knows to be truth. He sees that God, whatever God is doing, he, he doesn't understand the beginning and the end of what God is doing, but he knows God is working. And that's what we take away from this passage of Scripture today, that God is working. It's not fatalism. We just leave this world is just up for fate. But God is working, sovereignly working in his, in his creation. He's actively working in our lives. He's sovereign. He rules over the entire creation. John, he's on the island of Patmos. He sees this vision, and he's told to record everything that he sees. And he says this about Uh, what he sees in God's throne room in Revelation 4, 6 through 11. And he looks up and he sees something like a sea of glass similar to crystal and was also before the throne. And four living creatures covered with eyes in front and back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. 
Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and they were covered with eyes around, their, around and inside. And day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. What an awesome passage of Scripture. John describing what he's seen in this heavenly vision and seeing our holy, exalted God saying, getting all the glory of, of everybody around him, the angels, the seraphim, the elders, the humanity, giving God his just and due glory. And they say, it is by your will that they exist. It is by God's will and him carrying out his will. He, Paul writes in Ephesians 1.11 about God's will. In Him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of His will. That is our God, working everything out in agreement with the purpose of His will. And so Scripture declares that God is sovereign. He's working out His will in His creation and he does this by providentially working in his creation. We had many testimonies of God providentially working in our lives. We see it. It's amazing, that, as Laura Lee said, that our God is uh, holding this universe into existence from the stars to the DNA. He, he's doing all that, but yet he knows our name. He, he knows the number of hairs on our head. He's a personal God who knows us and interacts and actively is working in our lives on a daily basis. Scripture declares he will never leave us nor forsake us. And God is providentially working not only in this world, but in the hearts of his children and his people. And Scripture testifies to that over and over again. We know the story of Joseph in Genesis. His brothers become jealous. They sell him off into slavery after they decide not to kill him. He goes into Egypt. God providentially allows him to rise to a position of great power because of these visions that God had given him to an answer to the, for the leader to, to know, the, for the Pharaoh to know what was to come. And so he had all this great power. In it. But he, during that, Joseph, we know, encountered many trials and tribulations. And did he not struggle? I wonder. I mean, did he not struggle with bitterness? Why, God? Why did you allow this to happen to me? We don't see that in Scripture. We see him being obedient and faithful. And God providentially using Joseph to bring him to a position of power to ultimately save the children of Israel. His brothers come back to Egypt because there's a famine in the land where they're from. And they come to Egypt for food. And they go before Joseph, the one they sold into slavery. And this, the narrative goes on, and we know, we know that ultimately Joseph is... Uh, providentially used by God to save his family. 
through the trial and tribulation of being sold into slavery. And his brothers came, had this, this moment where like, they're like, oh no, we did this to him, and now he has all this power. And now he's, he, might, you know, he might reach out in his wrath and strike back at us. And they were fearful of that. And Joseph came to them and he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God providentially used what you were doing for evil's sake, for the good, and for the promise he gave to Abraham to, to continue. For the good of us. The story of Daniel in the lion's den, right? We know that story. God providentially working. How can you stay the mouths of lions? God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace, not touched, not scorched, not burned. God providentially working. And they said, look, you can throw us into this furnace, but it's up to God whether we live or die or not. We're placing our faith in God. God providentially working out his will in human history, being active in, his, in human history. Even when we, you, if you look at the, what was happening at these times, you would say, where is God? Why is he not showing up in a marvelous way? But he providentially, time and time again, demonstrated his power and sovereignty, working out his will in this life or in this world. Scripture attests to that time and time again. Uh, and Daniel speaks of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, who was very prideful, and so God <laughs> made him, uh, took away his sanity, essentially, and he, he went from a king to, to, you know, being this ruler over this vast territory to, to groveling out in the field and eating grass like cows and being completely insane. God allowed that. God actively worked in Nebuchadnezzar's life to bring him low, and then in verse 34, we see uh, God gave him back his sanity, and this is what Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, says about the, about the creator God. But the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me, and then I praised the Most High, and honored and glorified him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. Folks, church, God is in control. He is sovereign over his creation. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? There is no one who can oppose him and be victorious in it. That is our God. He's sovereignly ruling and he's sovereignly uh, providentially working in the lives of, or in, in creation and in the lives of his people. And so tying this back to, to time, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, the, the, the seasons of life, the positive and the negative, this compare and contrasting that he does, we, we look at times in our seasons in our life and if you're like me, I have this tendency to go, why God? Why have you allowed this? Why are you allowing me to endure this? And this is where the, the statement of we live by faith comes in. We go to God and we, like Solomon, inject our theology into the circumstances and say, no, God has allowed this. And he's allowed it. And he's providentially working. And even though I may not understand it, I know that it is true because he's declared it to be so. 
He's sovereignly working in our lives and, and um, so grateful that we have uh, the ability as he's revealed himself in his special revelation, right? As Solomon looks around under the sun and he uses all his wisdom and says life is but vanity, that's because general revelation can't declare who God is and what he's doing. It points to a creator. The mountains, the stars, everything that we see points to a creator, but it doesn't tell us what God is doing. It requires special revelation, and the special revelation God has given us is his word. And we find Solomon here in Ecclesiastes 3.11. I hope you allow me this, this opportunity as Solomon compared and contrasted the different seasons of life. I want to compare and contrast the 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 attitude of the old and the new testament from the new testament perspective where we stand today in ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 solomon says he has made everything that is god appropriate in its time he has also put eternity in their hearts but no one can discover the work god has done from the beginning to end he says i know there's a god I know he's put this thing of eternity, this shalom that he desires to be in our hearts, to live with him for all of eternity, but we can't discover the work God is doing from beginning to end. He goes on, for I consider, well, that's the, the New Testament passage. And so we see this, this attitude of disillusionment, not being able to understand, being frustrated, because he can't understand what God is doing. He doesn't know what he's doing from beginning to end, but yet we stand here with the ability to do so. You can contrast Ecclesiastes 3.11 with Romans 8.18. And this is what Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. See Solomon saying, I don't know what, I know God's at work, but I just don't know what he's doing. And we see in the New Testament perspective, Paul saying, we know what God is doing. We know God has made us and justified us and purchased us and, and given us uh, a salvation and it promises the promise to restore shalom and eternity with him is coming for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he says that the, even though uh, we're suffering at this present time, it doesn't even compare to the glory that is coming. It doesn't even compare. We know what God is doing from beginning to end in the New Testament context. How grateful we should be for that. We know his story. We know his rescue mission. He goes on in verse in Romans 8 to say these things about, um, I skipped a few passages because I've already uh, preached on that just recently in, my, in the series that we went through in Galatians about God giving us the down payment of our, of our inheritance, our eternal inheritance, the spirit of God who dwells within us. And how, what a great blessing that is that God dwells with inside the believer. And what a gift that is. He, and he goes on in verse 27 to speak of what the Spirit does for us. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit of God intercedes for us, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are so blessed to have this eternal life given to us in Christ Jesus and be given this uh, the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us. The, the times when we can't even raise our eyes to, to pray to God for those who are in Christ and have the Spirit. In, he intercedes for us. He prays the prayer that we cannot pray. 
What a contrast that is to, to Solomon saying, I know God's at work, but I don't understand what he's doing. Everything seems vanity and meaningless to me. But we know God is at work and he's sovereignly and providentially working out his will. Even God's spirit indwelling in us was from the will of God. And he goes on, we know all things work together for good. This verse is often quoted, and they just vote, quote this one verse. We know all things work together for good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That's a dangerous verse just to hand somebody. I've heard of people grieving their, their, spouse, their dead spouse at a funeral, and someone comes up and says, I know you're hurting, but all things work together for good for those who love God. There's your scripture. Right? That's, that's probably not the best thing to say at that moment. It's true, but, but we have to understand the greater context of Romans 8. We have to understand that Paul's telling us that God's sovereignly ruling, and God is going to make it okay for that person, but they don't give them that, that line and, and then expect them to, to, to snap out of it because they have faith that God's going to change them the, the grieving heart. God is working all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's sovereignly working things out. But to understand that verse and to take comfort in that verse, you first have to understand God's sovereignty. You have to rest in it. Because times are coming. There are many seasons in life when all we will have to rest on is what God has promised. When we look around and say, there's no way God can make any good out of this, that's when our theology has to speak into our, our knowledge. Say, no. God says all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why? Because for those he foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined, and as we read these passages of Scripture, I just want you to, to note that the things, these action words that he's describing here, they're in the past tense. It's already completed in Christ. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of God, or to the Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Christ takes preeminence in all things, he says in verse 30, and those he predestined, past tense, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. When you heard the declaration that Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sin, that God the Father allowed his son to come down from the, the, the glorious heavens and take upon the form of a servant to live that life that you and I cannot live because of our sin, but because he was God in the flesh, he could live that law perfectly for us, only to go to the cross to pay the penalty as a spotless lamb of God, to, to have the wrath of, of, of God put upon him for our sin, not his, but ours. He took that payment upon himself for us. And in so doing, God's wrath was satisfied in Jesus and punishing Jesus for our account. Jesus went to the cross to stand as a vicar for us, to stand in our place, to take the punishment for us. And in so doing, God can look at us, even though we are sinners. He's already paid the penalty. We are justified, past tense. He declares us justified like a judge would. 
without sin, without blemish, because he's already paid the penalty, given the penalty, dished out the penalty to Jesus on our account. It's done. Those he predestined and those he called, he justified in Jesus. And those he justified, he also glorified. This thing, this promise of glorification that's to come. When there's going to be a time, if you're in Christ Jesus, that you will not be in sin. Your sin will be furthest from your mind. You will not have any more sickness or sorrow or death. This thing of glorification is awaiting us. But in God's eye, it's already done. Those he justified, he glorified. We are safe and secure in the salvation extended to us in Jesus Christ. God is working his will in his life. And we can take great comfort, I pray, and solace in that no matter what comes tomorrow or next week or next year, if you're in Christ Jesus, he's working all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, these are the spiritual blessings already made for you. They're already up in heaven waiting for you. He gives this long list of these blessings that we are given in Christ Jesus. So much comfort that we can take from that as we encounter this dark and evil world. As we begin to to doubt, may God's Spirit call us back to who He's revealed Himself to be. And may we trust in His sovereignty. And He's providentially working in our lives. I came across this passage of Scripture this week in Hosea. I wanted to close with this. Hosea is speaking to the children of Israel in its proper context. He's warning them because they've turned their back yet again begin, and he's saying, look, judgment's coming. But I think it's good for us to be reminded that the Lord is the God of armies and the Lord is His name. Yahweh is his name. And Hosea commands or spurns the children of Israel, and I believe the Holy Spirit spurns us to, to, to in those times of doubt, no matter when, when those difficult seasons of life come, may we also do this. But you must return to your God. You must maintain love and justice and always put hope in your God. For he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. We're thankful for this reminder this morning through the words of Solomon and other um, men that you've chosen to, to write, handwrite your scripture inspired by the Spirit, Lord, of your sovereignty and your providence, that you know us, you love us, that even though in the dark times and probably the dark times that are to come, Father, you are working all things together for good your will will be carried out we have no reason to doubt that lord so help us father to cling to the promises you've given us help us to cling to our god help us to return to him if we are wavering at this moment god i pray for any of those who may be in the sound of my voice who have not encountered jesus in a saving way that they are in their sin that they have this expectant judgment that will be come upon their heads father unless they turn and believe and trust in Christ this morning. I pray for them that your spirit would uh, testify of their need to 
abandon hope and all else and believe and turn and trust in Christ alone and his accomplished work, that they too may find the hope and the eternal salvation that you have promised, Lord, and the shalom that is to come um, according to your will. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.